I would uh, like you to put yourself back in Corrie Ten Boom's spot. She was a lady uh, that lived in Holland, and her whole family was arrested by the Nazis and taken off to concentration camps because they had been hiding Jews in their house. And when she got to the concentration camp, uh, she and her sister Betsy started um, Bible studies um, with, when they could. They had smuggled a Bible into the camp, and God had miraculously arranged for that to happen. But as she was working with all of these Jews that knew that there was coming the day when they be, would be marched to their death, and all of the other um, people that had hid Jews in that concentration camp, one of the biggest questions and struggles that she addressed was this question, you tell me that God loves me. How do you answer that? They're in the worst circumstances of their entire lives. They're being starved and beaten daily. There is no hope. There isn't any future there uh, in those concentration camps. They had lost everything. They had lost their families. They had lost their dignity. Um, They had even so much as lost their names, and now they were just people with a number who were waiting for their number to be called up, to be hauled off, to be shot, or what, however, whatever means they used to kill them in the different camps. But they were beaten and dehumanized. How do you convince them that God loves them? That was Corrie Ten Boom's big thing that she had to wrestle with. And, and as she wrestled with that, um, You know, there was nothing in all of their circumstances that she could point to and say, well, you see this. We, as Americans, tend to think that if our circumstances are going good, that is proof that God loves us. But then if our circumstances aren't going very good, that is also proof that God doesn't love us. And so you see the fallacy of that whole argument that our circumstances have anything at all to do with how much God loves us. The only thing that Corey Ten Boom could do with those other women was continually talk to them about the cross. That That was all she could do. And that was the best thing she could do. Because if you go throughout the scriptures, the scriptures talk about two main reasons why God proves that God loves us. Number one, he loves us because he created us and made us and shaped us. And we do tend to love the things that we created. (laughs) But secondly, God loves us, and the theme of the scriptures is that God loves us, and he has proven it by sending his son to die on the cross for us. So as I've been going through this series on Jesus Loves Me, this I know, um, we introduced that and just gave some 
some um, introductory comments two weeks ago talking about the fact that God not only loves the whole world, but he loves us individually. Last week we talked from Romans and we talked about the fact that, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. There isn't any concentration camp. There isn't any difficulty. There isn't anything that can happen to my health that can separate me from the love of God. There is nothing that shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this week, I want to simply remind us again of this simple fact that the answer to the question, how do I know God loves me? It boils down to this one supreme answer that is provided throughout the scriptures in the cross. I want to just share with you five different scriptures, five different verses real quick. All of them you know, probably could quote them with me from from heart in different translations. But John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's that verse in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice those words there. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And then 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Wow. Always and without fail, the scriptures use the cross as the supreme argument and example of God's love towards us. There is no greater proof than that. And so, really, the title of my message this morning is, is Jesus Loves Me, Settled at the Cross. That settles that question. And any time in our life, when we go through that, that, that doubt that Satan plants in our minds, does God really love me? Yes, it has been settled in one place. It's been settled at the cross. Fleming Rutledge wrote a book that came out in 2017. And in that book called The Crucifixion, um, it, it's kind of an updated version to John R. W. Stott's uh, The Cross of Christ. But um, he, he writes in that, that in the ancient world there is, there is no punishment that was more painful, more terrifying, uh, more dehumanizing than the cross that Jesus went on. Certainly, that kind of punishment would not even be allowed 
today. Jesus was not only put to death by a corrupt political and religious class of leaders, but he endured the most torturous and horrific kind of death, one reserved for only the lowliest, the lowest and the most despised criminals of the day. And so you have Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who is perfectly innocent in both motive and behavior on a cross, which was the worst form of punishment in the world. The early disciples and the apostles were credited with turning the world upside down. And I believe that part of the reason for that, as they look back at the cross, and they look back at what Christ had done for them, and they looked at the crucifixion, and they saw something different than we tend to see when we look at the cross. We kind of have a blind eye towards just how awful our sin is. That's not even a popular word word today. We don't like sermons on sin. We don't even like to talk about sin. It's not part of our vocabulary anymore. We can't even bring ourselves to admit that something we did was sin. We, we tone it down. Oh, it was a mistake, or it was this, or it was that, or something else. But we can't just quite bring ourselves to call something sin. If we can't do that, we really can't look at the cross and really admit that what Jesus did on the cross was for Adrian Timmons's sin. We, we have a hard time dealing with that, but not those disciples, not those apostles, not the early church. When they looked back at the cross, and when they saw what Jesus endured for them, and they saw what Jesus suffered and how he endured the crucifixion, and they knew there was something that had gone awfully wrong with the world and with them and with us. There was no other explanation for why God would allow his only son to hang on a cross and endure that kind of suffering outside of the fact that my sin and your sin is so bad there was nothing you and I could do about it. We can't escape it. We can't tone it down. We can't ignore it. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. Your sin and my sin was so bad that God had to send his son to die on a cross and to suffer excruciating pain before he died so that God could receive us and forgive our sins. If our sin required that kind of a death of a perfect, innocent Son of God, then our sin really is hopeless quicksand. And we are literally dead in our sins and transgressions, and we are separated from God, and we are on a slippery slope to hell. Another word we don't want to address in our culture today. 
But the fact is, without the cross, that is where every one of us deserve to end up at the end of life. And without the cross, our sins would not be forgiven and we would be destined for hell eternally. My sin, our sin, has done so much damage and has scarred us so deeply that there is no magic wand from heaven that can wipe it away. God could not just announce through the the archangel Gabriel, he could not just announce that all people are just forgiven. How nice that would have been. But God couldn't do that because my sin was worse than that. It wasn't just something he could just wipe away. No, God had to come himself and take on my life. And he had to take on my sin and bear the weight of the sin of the whole world, the Bible says. Those who stood beneath the cross of Christ that day could never forget it. It's easy for us to forget it. But they could never forget what they witnessed at the cross. The reason that we take communion as often as we do is because God never wants us to forget this one thing. That his love for you cost him his son. God never wants me to forget. He never wants you to forget. That no matter what you're going through in life. God loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross. And to endure excruciating pain and to descend into hell, and then to be resurrected. And that he did that for us. God is not. God has never been. God will never be a doting grandfather in the sky who just lets us into heaven and gives us good things just because he's kind and generous and merciful. It cost God everything. To love us. It's, it's, it's not just that God is loving. We, we know John says God is love. Favorite three words of the Bible. <laughs> but friends, it's not just because he's loving. It's because it cost him his own son. That's how much he loves us. We can't take that lightly. We can't ignore that. We can't walk away from that. We can't downplay our sin. We have to know that God loved us that much that he sent his son to die on the cross. And and I don't know about you, but watching your own kids go through difficult things is hard. But that, (laughs) for someone else, that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
God loves you, and he loves me that much. When I went off to college, I managed to work real hard to get through college in four years to save money, uh, partly. And I worked hard while I was at college. I worked 40 hours a week and sometimes more than that. Um, and I got through college without any student debt. And then I went to seminary and didn't quite do as well there, uh, handling finances and all of that. But I worked hard uh, getting through college and doing all of that and taking full load classes and all of that. There was a widower um, in Webster, South Dakota, who um, started attending my home church in Bristol about the time I left for college. And I came home, I, I don't remember now for sure, I know it was one summer, maybe two, that I came home and, and was a summer ministry intern at my home church. And uh, one of my jobs was to go visit this lonely uh, man uh, named Walter. Um, Walter had recently been widowed. He had lived very, very frugally. Um, his house during the summer months when I would, was there to go visit him was always way too hot for me to be anywhere near comfortable. <laughs> Um, and and he he just um, the the most extravagant thing he did every week was to drive twelve miles to come to Westside Wesleyan Church in Bristol. And outside of that, he didn't spend any money, and he didn't have a lot of money to spend. And so I was surprised. I'd seen him a couple weeks before I was ready to leave for college, and he called and asked that I come back one more time uh, before I went back to college after that summer. And so I fitted in my schedule and got back over to see him again. And I was really surprised when he handed me a check um, and um, with some money to help with college expenses. And, and um, then I was even more surprised as I went on to do some other internships at other churches uh, but before he passed away, there were a couple of different times when the need was was pretty um, evident in my life and, and real to me. And but I hadn't said anything, I hadn't asked for anything. I'd just been praying, and there would show up a couple checks in the mail from Walter again. Um, and I was always thankful, and I always expressed my appreciation to him. But I've never forgotten Walter. Now, there were many other wonderful, godly people with many more resources that could have helped, uh, but God didn't lead them that way. But God used this humble and frugal man and widower um, at some very critical points in my journey. But his generosity towards me made a mark on my life because I knew what it cost him. <laughs> I knew what it cost him. We really are not Christians until you and I understand what it cost God to love us. It's not just that he's just up there and he just loves to love us, sinners. 
It cost him to love us. It cost him his one and only son to die on a cross, not just for simple mistakes or lapse in judgment or misdirected motives or all this other stuff, but to die on a cross for our sins. Anselm of Canterbury was a Roman Catholic theologian who argued that because Jesus was fully human, he could be, he could represent us sinful men and women. And because he was fully divine, fully God, he could, um, satisfy the wrath of God towards our sin. Anselm wrote that the Son of God went all the way to the bottom of the muck of human dysfunction in order to recover the diamond inside of us, the image of God in us, and polish it and make it shine. I love the word, the way he puts that. He went down in the muck. (laughs) I remember growing up, and uh, I don't know why you would do this, but our our barnyard um, sloped downhill to where our cows came in to be milked. And in the spring of the year, I mean, the muck got about this deep. And I'd be trying to wheelbarrow out the manure through that muck and get it up to the top of the hill <laughs> and over. And I just remember sometimes just you know, sometimes you'd slip and you'd just be covered in it and all of that. But I just think as I as I listen to this, uh, Anselm, that God went to the bottom of the muck of human dysfunction. That's what that's the image I have in my mind of, of just being down all in it, slipping and, and all of that. And he goes down to recover the diamond, the image of God that is in us. And then he polishes it to make it shine. The only way the love of God is offered to sinners is by way of the cross. God doesn't love you any other way. He loves you by way of the cross. And if you throw out the cross, if you throw out what Jesus did on the cross, I want to tell you, God doesn't love you. God loves you through the cross. It was the cross that sent his son to die for you. We will never experience the love of God in this life or in the next life until we have sat beneath the cross of Christ and marveled at how much he loves us while we were yet sinners. The cross announces that God loves me so much that I can come clean with my sin. I can face the great holy God and know that he is faithful and just and will forgive me my sins and purify me from all unrighteousness. So I just want us to pause just for a minute here. And I want you to pray just silently and just ask God, that God, who sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to cleanse you, to forgive you, 
and to set you free and to transform you for victory over sin.